think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 38 of The Boys in Short Pants, the 39th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Edson Renville. And uh, we have uh, we have some news. Not not a it's it's kind of kind of a weird news week. Um, so I guess we'll just launch right into it. Uh, you went to the Manning Conference, which is the annual gathering of the conservatives that happens in Ottawa. I did. Uh, do you want to tell us about your experience? Um, so I attended the Friday evening and uh, a small part of the sort of the Saturday afternoon. Overall, I thought the panel lineups were really good. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a hell of a lot better than last year, which we have, I believe, if you go back into the archives of the short pants yes um you have our takes from last year i was there last year and i had an absolute blast because it was basically a bunch of like totally insane far-right people and a bunch of like middle-of-the-road conservatives looking incredibly sheepish so there was would you you say that characterization is accurate i think that's fair and i think (laughs) they certainly got that message this year and there was a lot i mean there was no panel with the brexit guy oh i loved him although doug ford was back but there was a little less back shiny as ever a little less of the trumpy flavor this year uh, which i think was very good um one of the panels i attended which i wish you'd been there for so i could have got your uh i should have just i should have just come your delightful takes I'm a white guy. They would, they would never have checked me for ID or anything. <laughs> was it was a panel on? I think it was. I, I don't remember the the title of it, but it was working with Indigenous people on uh, industry and resource development. So it was pipelines. Was sort of the thrust of it. It was, it was pipelines. In, in large part related to pipelines. You guys are obsessed. You got pipelines on the brain, man. But but in years past, it may have been you know three white guys on the panel. Um, this time, I don't remember who the moderator was. Um, but it was an indigenous, I believe, chief. Uh, don't quote me on that from Frog Lake First Nation. Okay. It was an indigenous um, ML, uh, BC liberal MLA. Okay. Um, who was the critic on the natural gas file. Yes. And it I actually remember was... him because there was a great piece in the Financial Post a while back about how so many indigenous people love pipeline development. And one of them was this guy who they neglected to mention was the BC Liberal MLA and also energy critic. Fair. Seem- yes, seems- that was pretty funny. Seems like an important disclosure. Yes, it did seem like an important omission. Um, and the last one was a unionist. Um, someone so from someone who the... favors the reunification of uh, Northern <laughs> Yes. No, someone from the, I want to say Building Trades Union. Okay. Um, They're not. Even, okay, don't get me started. Carry on. <laughs> and so he was talking about how there's good unions and bad unions. Yeah, no, they would. I would agree with that assessment <laughs> well, coming from the building trades union, actually. Uh, but no, it was very good. I, I think overall, and I think a lot of the panels were took a, a little, little less little, crazy than last year. A little different approach. Well, than who last was it year? last year? We had Tom Quiggin, who uh, is that his name? Yes. Yes, who was the sort of like. Uh, Iran is trying to implant Sharia law in, like, our gardens and uh, all that stuff. And then uh, we had Jordan Peterson, of course, uh, Kermit the Frog. Last year? Yeah, he was there. Oh, maybe I, I, his, I think his, I missed that panel. He had his cowboy boots and everything. So great. no Jordan Peterson. Well, Quiggin was there in person. Mark Stein wasn't last a year, panel. Too. Mark Stein was on a panel. Yeah. Um, I think the highlights of this year's conference were more or less just political leaders. Yeah. Um, they had all the Ontario. Carolyn Mulroney also. Actually, can we talk well, about that? that whoa, well, wait. We'll okay. get there. Um, so what I was going to say is they had um, sort of sit-downs with all of the Ontario PC yeah. nominees, or the top three, I don't know if the well, fourth lady. Well, when you say nominees, you mean leadership candidates? Um, yes. Okay. Leadership candidates. So who is that right now? Like, there's Carol Mulroney, obviously, there's Doug Ford, obviously, Christine Elliott, obviously. Is there a fourth guy? There's theoretically a fourth woman. I say theoretically because I don't know that her papers are in oh. yet. Who's that going to be? Tanya Allen. Um, who was the president of Parents First Educators, uh, ah. ab- abbreviated to PATH, um, who's the social conservative candidate. Okay. Um, last I saw, this about five days ago, she needed to raise $100,000 and get some token amount of signatures, probably 100. Um, I, I haven't seen anything as of late as an update as to whether or not um, if she doesn't have 100 grand by in two days, I think she's toast. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I think the 
sex ed curriculum and some of the other social conservative issues were... They did make a lot of... Some people very, very, very angry. Salient enough that she might be able to pull $100,000 together I mean, in, in a week. Yeah, and you're talking to about, like, you know, this is the PC base. Or rather, it's people who don't have anywhere else to go, I would say. Uh, if not necessarily the PC base. But they, uh... Yeah, I mean, like, I don't think she would win, necessarily. But she could certainly... Throw, throw a wrench and things. Then again, people said that about Patrick Brown last time, too, and he was running as, like, the social conservative candidate. So, who knows? Uh, can we talk about Caroline Mulroney? If you want I think to. She, she, uh, Christine Elliott is more or less a known quantity. I think people would say that she, she's a reasonably middle-of-the-road. Probably leans more conservative than your average MPP. Uh, I've, I've heard her called a red Tory before, actually. So. Oh, okay. My impression is she's, she's pretty right-wing by, like, I mean, my standards, but, you know... Um, it's all relative, I suppose. Yeah, we'll take that with a grain of salt, perhaps. Um, and obviously, Doug Ford is what he is, which is the sort of like reactionary authoritarian blend of whatever. He- so, I mean, he, he's Ford Nation. He is what he is, kind of a known quantity. Uh, Carolyn Mulroney is something that is, you know, turning into. We talked about her a couple weeks ago. But now that, you know, she's uh, gone out there and, and started opening her mouth in public about different issues a bit, uh, we can probably have a more judicious verdict. And I think my verdict thus far is that she's a very good demonstration of why politics is a skill and not something you actually just inherit. Um, because it has not been great. I, I think that's fair. Let me let me comment briefly on this, although I hadn't That's That's, that's the point of us doing this. <laughs> I, I still have obviously yet to pick a candidate. Um, Are you going to vote in this uh, leadership election? You know, I think I have like two days to get a membership, okay. so I need to I need, to, need to throw to, down my yeah. ten dollars very very soon. Okay, or uh, or shut up, I suppose. Yes, um, I, I fully intend to though. Um, so in terms of voting, a lot of the candidates seem on on carbon tax on sex ed curriculum. They well, they're all be, bad on carbon tax. They seem to be taking pretty much the same position. Yes. So it's interesting to see who. Um, is going to differentiate themselves in terms of policy because of how short-lived the race is going to be. It doesn't yeah. seem like it's going to be a policy-centric. It's going to be about likability mm-hmm. um, and electability, particularly electability. Um, so all that said, if there's no real differentiation um, in terms of sus- substantive political issues, I think I'm going to be more than happy to throw my vote towards whoever uh, decides to strike the biggest blow towards the beer store. Doug Ford, though? Can you see a world where you vote for Doug Ford? If he promises to destroy the beer store, <laughs> and I believe him, you're a single issue voter. <laughs> it might be possible. Single issue voter. Uh, mm. Also, if they can open uh, the LCBO till nine on, uh, on nine, Saturdays nine and Sundays, on, yeah, o- open on holidays. These are these are my yeah. demands. Um, but more seriously, I, I found Carolyn Mulroney basically put her foot in her mouth on the carbon tax uh, by saying that they were going to not do it, and then would make up the extra revenue through savings, which is the time-honored sort of conservative political crutch when you don't really know what you would cut and don't want to make anyone mad, so you just say you're going to cut the waste, quote-unquote. And that actually was already factored into the the PC People's Guarantee platform, in fact, to the tune of about $4 billion. So let me forgo the policy argument and instead go towards her communications problems. If anyone has watched her social media... (laughs) It is Woof. in need of work. Yeah. It's game time. Or there was another video where she's coming up like a dark set of stairs well, to fact, her did, campaign did we... office carrying like toilet paper and paper towels and being like setting up the campaign office. I believe the last time we talked about her was actually before her announcement, which was at, that she was running, which was at, I believe, 10 p.m. on Super Bowl Sunday. God only knows. Yes. yes. During the game. <laughs> literally during the game, which it was a game that went to the very last minute. Uh, and thank God the Philadelphia Eagles carried it. But, uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah. It was not indicative to me of someone the knowledge of, you know, when to strike when the iron is hot. There, yeah, there seem to have been a series of communication failures. Um, she hasn't been overly impressive in interviews yet. Her comms generally in from social yes. media to in person have been weak. Infuriatingly, um, she's very much leaning on her father, too. Yeah, uh, Both in terms of messaging, where she said, my father was the greenest prime minister, which, like, okay, and second, like, you're also not your father. And also, uh, <laughs> very amusingly, at a $1,200 a pop fundraiser. Where her father was the guest of honor. Yes. Slash draw. Yeah. Yeah. Which is nice. 
Very which, nice. Which is the maximum donation limit in Indeed. Ontario. And he's also, keep in mind, like, the thing with Brian Mulroney is, like, lest we forget, he, you know, resigned in disgrace. Like, like under a shadow of corruption. And, like, <laughs> it was, like, just, like, literally, like, accepting brown envelopes full of cash from lobbyists. Like, this was not a, a good way to go as a political end. Yes. So, you know. I, I think leaning heavily on that seems to me to be an... Un- like, I think Brian Mulroney's been very happy that no one long, is really talking about Brian Mulroney forgotten. anymore. And he's, like, able to just, like, live out his life as a very highly compensated lawyer in the lovely city of Montreal. And no one really talks so much about, hey, wasn't he the guy that took those envelopes? And, like, he's fine, right? Like, I think he's happier when no one's talking about him. Uh, but no, like, he's doing... He's sort of coming out, uh, going on a limb for his daughter. He was uh, one of... Trudeau's like NAFTA gurus for some reason. Yeah, like, he testified in front of one of the uh, congressional committees very recently as well. Yeah, so I don't know if I were him, I would just like you know take it easy, but whatever. If he wants to relitigate Airbus, like I'm happy to. But uh, <laughs> anyway, whatever. That's his choice. Um, so uh, before we get too deep into the the rest of the news, we wanted to talk about uh, there was obviously the verdict in the Col- or sorry the Gerald Stanley uh, killing of Colton Bushy. Uh, trial on Friday in Saskatchewan and uh, we honestly like neither of us are lawyers we're both white guys like we don't add a lot that is original that you can't get elsewhere to this conversation I think it's fair to say that my thoughts are you know like I don't think that justice was served really and I you know hope that the family can get some some closure on this Uh, but beyond that you know I think we'll leave it to people better qualified you mentioned that um yeah, I, th- I think I would advise the docket. I haven't had uh, the chance to give it a listen yet, but I've heard their episode um, where they talking about sort of legal reforms and some of those things I think would be much better listening than us on yes. this particular topic. I think that the only point I would want to make about this is that people have been mad at Trudeau uh, and the justice minister for coming out and talking about the case at all and saying that, oh, it should matter before the courts, whatever. I personally, and I don't even want to get into the legal ramifications of this, I just think justice is inherently political when you're talking about politicians not talking about the justice system. I think you're buying into a frame that is just completely wrongheaded. But anyway, that's that's the extent of my take on that. This, this is going to be bad because I have to I have to register my disagreement. Okay, that's and, fine. You can and, and then we're not going to go into this issue. Okay, that's fine. We can talk about it another time. Um, third thing we're going to talk about is uh, the post office. So uh, the Trudeau Liberals ran last election on... Uh, Continue or restoring door-to-door service, uh, ending community mailboxes, which uh, the Harper government has started transitioning the Crown Corp over to. So let's actually be very clear here. Okay. Because they ran on a whole bunch of things, well, not a whole bunch, but several positions related to the door-to-door delivery. Their platform was different than the statements by Trudeau, and I I think that's sort of where it gets into the... (laughs) Some creative tension, you could say. Yeah, so, I mean... Ultimately, what they've decided to do, they sort of, like, did this long-term consultation or, you know, stock-take exercise uh, and uh, came to... Yeah, okay, so the first line in realchange.ca is, uh, we will save home mail delivery. Do you want to read the rest of that? But it's more specific. By ending door-to-door mail delivery, Stephen Harper's asking Canadians to pay more. Why, Why... more well in the sense that we're paying the same amount but are getting less service so it's not really no it's pay the same for less service but that's fine that is unacceptable we will stop stephen harper's plan to end door-to-door mail delivery in canada and undertake a new review of canada post to make sure that it provides high quality service at a reasonable price to canadians no matter where they live okay that's fair so the text is a little more ambiguous because his comments were not yes it's important yeah. to draw the distinction that the platform was unim- well not unambiguous it was actually quite ambiguous but it, yes it was tactically <laughs> ambiguous um but trudeau is on the record in at least one speech i think in montreal saying we will reverse yes well and certainly from my my on the ground experience in the last election like a lot of homes where you saw Save door-to-door signs, which are actually a lot. You'd be surprised at ten, I think. Um, I, I was on the ground during that campaign. Well, did you see a lot of those signs? I saw some, and okay. we. I, actually, I saw a lot. I actually uh, talked to. At one point, we talked to a post office worker doing door-to-door. Yeah, and she was incredibly understanding. She's like, "Yeah, this makes no sense. Why? <laughs> why the hell I go door-to-door?" We'll come back to that. Uh, but at any rate, my point is only that liberals were very happy to let people believe. That they were going to restore door to door fully. They were very happy to let people believe a lot of things. Yes, that's true. <laughs> yes. Um, 
That's fair. So, uh, what they've ended up doing is nothing. They are not restoring the service that was cut, nor are they extending the service cuts or, like, anything else, really. And they seem to be saying they're going to appoint new management to the Crown Corporation that will make transformative changes, which is usually what you hear at a company that's six months out from going bankrupt. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I don't know. Um, what, what are your thoughts on this? Um, so I think one of the reasons we picked this issue in particular is because we disagree. Ooh! <laughs> um, I have very little time for the save door to a door-to-door delivery argument. I think in, you know, the modern age that we are, I actually grew up not getting door-to-door delivery, and it was sort of a revelation to me at age 14 that people were, like, one neighborhood over from me, and I thought it was bewildering. Um, since, like, 1990, we had one of these, I think they them super boxes or something like that, like, a couple, uh, a couple houses down from us, and, you know, never a complication in my life. Um, the, I think the argument is not my life as a, you know, a young, able-bodied person, but rather for our seniors. Yes. And or people living with disabilities. Seniors, not seniors. Yeah, and any of these groups, any, yeah. uh, groups. But my take on this is sort of twofold. One, these individuals have many other things in their lives <laughs> that are, um, like, hard to like getting groceries right i I suppose you can get your groceries delivered yeah um but there's a lot of things in life that do not get hand delivered to your door yeah and i think keeping a vastly inefficient system um cannot be justified purely on this merit and i think if you want to make special accommodations for people in these circumstances you absolutely can i think pushing digital should be step one then pushing uh, special accommodation step two, but by no means can you justify delivering hand delivering mail to fifty percent of the population to yeah. account for a few cases. I mean, like personally, for me, this has not been like an enormous, enormous thing. I get that there are people who are very, very invested in it, and uh, that's you know I can totally understand where they're coming from. On the other hand, like I think systemically, like it makes less and less sense as mail volume kind of declines, and especially like. Speaking for myself, the vast wait, majority... Wait, no, you stop. You're agreeing with me. Oh, no, but I disagree with you on other things about this. So what I think the opportunity for Canada Post is, is that, like, this is a large crown corporation that owns, like, a large logistical, like, distribution network as well as real estate in, like, every community in the country. People have talked about postal banking, which is basically just, like, offering, like, rudimentary financial services uh, through the post office, like, basic kind of checking accounts, that kind of thing. Uh, which, like, works really well in countries that have it, and people really like their postal banks, and I, like, don't see a particularly compelling reason to not do this. I think it's just, like, a value add, considering that we already have the infrastructure. It's just basically piggybacking a new service that people who are underserved by traditional financial financial institutions will be able to take advantage of, which I think is, like, all to the good. Uh, I think there's also, like... I think this is an opportunity where, like, just appointing new leadership and calling it a day is is just a real wasted opportunity. Like, it's 21st century. We have an enormous distributional network. Like, let's be creative about how we can sort of reimagine the delivery of public services through public means that we already own. So so pitch me on something. You mentioned postal banking, and I I can sort of see that one. Yeah, sure. Not that I necessarily support it, but I I can see how a bank and a post office are very similar in terms of the infrastructure they would require. I could see some rudiment, or some basic kind of like Service Canada sort of stuff could be done. uh, Yeah, you're you're waiting for the next one. This isn't what you said. You're waiting for the next one. But I think, I do think some like like Service Canada style things that don't necessarily need a face-to-face contact. That's fine. uh, Keep going. Keep going. The other one that has been floated, uh, that I agree with part of your criticism here, is uh, some sort of broadband provision. And you, you express great skepticism at this because they don't own the lines, which is fair. I think that like any reasonable observer would agree with you. Uh, I think it's an idea worth exploring, though, just because you do have like at least a large distributional network set up, and you can always piggyback on last mile. Um, so, I don't know. I think that's a niche that like is worth exploring, like as... You know, MPs point out, like, we have worse 
broadband coverage in some parts of this country than like, you know some parts of Africa. Like it's not great. I, I don't um, I don't see how that connects to Canada Post providing broadband services though. I think what you would like do, they're not laying the no, no, fiber. No, 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 but like what well, you have like tech savvy or that kind of stuff where you have basically like people who like piggyback on the big four having last mile and basically just giving like a low cost kind of no frills package. I'm imagining like a broadband like technician like strapped onto every post truck. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I really don't see the overlap in terms of turning a uh, mail trucks into Wi-Fi hotspots. <laughs> yeah, like none of these things. <laughs> no, I don't know. Like I think it's worth thinking. I think I think it's like this is an idea where, or not this idea in particular, but just the idea that like let's just start talking about what we can do with all this public infrastructure that I think is fair to say is being underused right now. Like, I think there's a lot more we can do than door-to-door delivery to, like, improve service delivery. But, of, but like, it's subsidizing my Amazon Prime. That is true. That is true. And I have my own issues with that. But, you know. That, that's why I said yeah, it. That, I, I knew this was a long-standing grudge of yours. Yeah, well, you know, I hate the tech giants. So, people are like, oh, aren't you a Luddite? And I'm like, is that such a bad thing? Is it? I don't know. It is. <laughs> Says the guy on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, your iPhone is made in China. Yeah. Um... So yeah, that's uh, that's the Canada po- the Great Canada Post debate. Yeah, I'm sorry that wasn't more explosive. I don't know, like people, like I, I've I've ranted about this before, but people say, "Oh, you guys should disagree more," and like we disagree on tons of things. It's just like a lot of our differences on things are are reasonably intractable. Like we just have basic value differences, and it's more interesting to talk about areas where we can sort of find a interesting place to discuss rather than just like, "Ah, oh, yes, our values on this are different." Okay. To reiterate that, just. To, to be clear, Trudeau plan, horrible. Well, it's just it's just punting. Yeah. It's just like, it, eh, it's I don't a, know, we'll let is, some other managers figure it out. It is 100% the spineless move. They're, oh, shocker. From the liberals? I would never expect I, that. I, I, I've tried to put myself in the liberals' like frame of mind here on this one, and I, I just can't. It is 100% a let's try and not piss off too many people on this side. But or not that, really do anything either. Or that side. They're sort of stuck because they've made this ridiculous promise and they that, don't want to cut costs. You would think that the party of Deliverology would be thinking bigger on delivery. You would think. Here you are. It, Here we are. It doesn't apply to parcels. That's, Appar- the, that's the asterisk not. at the bottom. Apparently not. So the next topic I want to talk about was um, sort of the state of the House of Commons in the sense of question period and like legislative strategy. I want to talk about something I've noticed about the conservatives. Uh, so they started off this week's question period by asking Justin Trudeau about a tweet sent by his principal secretary, Jerry Butts, we've talked about on the show before. And this was asked by Peter Kent, who is their uh, ethics critic, I believe. Correct. And shadow minister for ethics. Shadow minister for Yeah. They don't have an ethics minister. That's a stupid title. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <gasps> anyway, sorry. So he's their ethics shadow minister. And... Uh, also famously, someone who has been called a piece of shit by Justin Trudeau on the you, floor of the House. You have said this before. I have said this before. Well, that's fine. I think well, it, well, he was an MP, not while yes. he was uh, yes, that's true. leader. Actually, I think it was while he was leader. Mm, I don't know. It was know. like in 2013, 2014. Okay, I thought it was pre-leader, but... Either way, I think it's fair to say that between this and uh, what we've remarked on before with Pierre Polyev is that he was basically chosen not for his great acumen in terms of the finance portfolio... Uh, but because he can really make the liberals mad, uh, is that this is a similar thing they're doing. They are leading off question period with someone they know Justin Trudeau really does not like, asking him needling questions about stuff his friend does. Um, And asked him, because basically I think what had happened was uh, Butts had made a joke comparing... Not a joke. It was the people... Okay, so... The people kind moment, which we're not really going to get delve into, because unless you've been living under a rock, you heard about it. Okay, well, wait. Actually, yeah, go ahead and no, summarize. Go no, ahead. Let's delve into this. Oh, um, it's so tedious, though. Well, no, no, not not in the way you're thinking. Okay. Um, yeah. So I will presume that anyone listening to our podcast is familiar with the people kind moment. What is more interesting, and I actually wish I had a link available, but if if you can find it, I I implore you to Google it and to find the uncut version. That is this lady. And asking a winding, like, six-minute yes. question if you've ever, beforehand. If you've ever been to any kind of public talk, you've heard this kind of question before. So I, I actually sort of sympathize with him here. Um, the question was long and awkward, and he was trying to find a clever way to cut her off. And that's what he settled on, and I, I don't think it was a broader, no. like, 
anything it, it of fits, concern. It, the thing is, is that it was a very Justin Trudeau thing to say. Yeah. So people really latched onto it. Yeah, but so this this is one thing that I have a little sympathy for politicians in. Um, it's, it's a no win scenario. Well, it's a no win scenario. But when you spend hours talking. And talking recorded generally, or from time to time, you say something that's stupid. And yeah. When when it's people kind or uh, Harper, I have some sympathy for his statement, and I think the left made quite a deal about this in sort of a, a comparable yeah. way. Is the old stock? You see him sort of hesitate. He's enumerating things, and he's sort of looking for a way to finish his list, and he ends up yeah. with old stock. Yeah. Very comparable situations in my mind. So one interesting thing is like, I'm sorry if we're digressing here, but. Uh, the thing is that this happened at a town hall, and there's there's a saying in politics that you never want to get your, your picture taken with either kids or animals, because their behavior is entirely unpredictable, and you may end up with a terrible picture. If any of you have seen the the shot of, uh, or sort of the gif of, of Donald Trump recoiling <laughs> from the eagle, eagle. <laughs> like, kids and animals, bad bet, right? Like, it's just, it's bad. You, you don't want to risk it. Members of the public, in a sense, are kind of the same thing, especially in, a, in the age of video, where I think we talked earlier, uh, this is actually, I think, our second episode, where uh, Trudeau was, t- t- someone took, or two, two girls took a selfie with Trudeau and then asked him about uh, pipelines Un- in Halifax, in, uh, about undrip, you're right, um, in Halifax. And this is actually something, um, and I think I mentioned this then too, but if you have not listened to the episode, uh, Alan Blakeney, who's Premier of Saskatchewan in the, in the 70s, has written a great book called Political Management in Canada, which I personally think is one of the best sort of like, political memoirs slash reflections on sort of political power and government in Canada. I really, really recommend reading it. It's great. But he talks about how he used to go on a bus through Saskatchewan every summer to small towns and just visit people and ask them how they were doing and stuff. And after a while, he had to stop doing this because he would bring the media with him. And then inevitably, you know, especially in the later years of, of his, his his government, people, you know, they'd find a couple cranky people per day. And then the story wouldn't be Alan Blakeney has uneventful interactions with over 100 people. It would be Alan Blakeney yelled at by Farmer, right? And this was kind of a similar thing where, like, from all accounts, this is probably a pretty normal town hall otherwise. I actually don't remember where this one was. It might have not been. I don't know. But, uh... It could have been, but then what anyone would remembered was the one shot that was basically just like an offhand comment, right? So it's just so high risk. Well, I, I think you see that in sort of the messaging coming afterwards. I, I think I do think Trudeau does deserve praise for doing these town halls. Yeah, and, it's, and, it's and bold. And doing them it's bold. semi-frequently, and I think generally he handles the questions well. Um, coming out of it, though, there were some questions that he didn't handle as well and sort of either fumbled or said the wrong thing in response yeah. to. I will say for Trudeau, he's, he's a very good on-his-feet speaker about issues he may not necessarily know a whole lot about. In fact, he'd be a great podcaster, uh, <laughs> largely because of that, but yeah. So, I, I mean, the two that came out of this and that were pushed in conservative media afterwards were his response to the Patricia uh, Princess Patricia's yes. uh, infantrymen yeah. um, about were you're at or veterans are asking more than we're prepared to offer. <laughs> And then there was a question about immigration and ISIS that I think he also responded to incredibly poorly. Um, but all of that being said, Trudeau for the number of town halls that. and the number of hours of talking in front of large groups and the tough questions he received, I think on net it went well. Um, it then is up to the respective social media teams of you know the liberals and the opposition to take all those clips and to spin them the best you can and to try and push out coverage of whatever you want. Yeah. And I think the opposition inherently has an advantage because yep. media will cover... Well, because if it goes well, it's boring. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like It's like watching Justin Trudeau calmly explain issues to a crowd that is, you know, doesn't necessarily agree with him on everything, but is respectful. And, it, like, that's not... If you're a member of the media, like, that's not going to get a lot of clicks. Yeah, so for the five town halls that went perfect... They got 10 times less coverage than and less international coverage, no, remarkably as well, Yes. than the people kind comment. Yeah. So, so. to circle back uh, the, the, to Peter Kent. Yes, uh, of course. <laughs> We're really Peter, bad at this. Who's Peter Kent again? Uh, so at any rate, that's just to say that you know, he, Jerry Butts made a flippant remark about how people making fun of Justin Trudeau were Nazis. Well, it wasn't people. Uh, it was, it was in response particularly, I think, to Piers Morgan's um, oh, column. Oh, right. Um, Who, Piers Morgan is 
terrible, and no I, one should listen to him. I am not a Pierce Morgan admirer no one is. in the slightest. No one is. He's famous for being hated. Um, although, if you want to watch a Pierce Morgan clip, strongly recommend Pierce Morgan, Alex Jones. That on, is true. On firearms is perhaps the best that way to actually, spend ten minutes. It actually makes Pierce Morgan look okay, <laughs> which is terrible. Like, no one should be able to do that, but somehow he manages. I definitely watch that clip, like, every two months, <laughs> just because. No, you gotta watch the Goblins clip, though. The Goblins. Goblins. Um, so, yeah, at any rate, it's just basically needling at Jerry Butts, who gets away with virtually everything, uh, because he's a longtime friend. But, okay, let's actually dig into this a little more. Yeah, this is your favorite topic. Um, <laughs> it's it kind a, of is. It's a topic of mine. Um, so, Butts compares... Uh, Pierce comes out very critical and writes a critical column in the Daily Mail of Trudeau's uh, people kind of. Of course he writes for the Daily Mail. And I think his column was actually fairly reasonable. It sort of goes in the history of the word and stuff like that. But it, it's fundamentally trying to make an issue out of this. Yeah, which, I remember which you, perhaps, you sent me the column. And I, 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 I refused to click it because it was Piers Morgan writing in the Daily Mail. <laughs> and that's fair. <laughs> I can respect that. Yeah, that's a, it was a fair choice. Um, but, so, but immediately jumps to calling him a Nazi for if the rebel has a similar position on this, or if any of the all right people do, um, then you're in their camp and you're one with the Nazis. I see. And, and what this comes across is it comes across as trying to marginalize anyone who disagrees with you. Oh, so everyone who disagrees with you is a Nazi. Uh, effectively is, is what that argument is particularly coming from the principal secretary. This is an awkward Okay, the guy's supposed to be like a debate champion. Yeah, he do, he does have some pretty lame comebacks for a guy who's supposed to be a debate he's, champion. He's supposed admittedly. to be like the McGill debate champion, and he goes right for the Nazi reference, which I think is admittedly pretty weak. Yeah. Um, it got him in trouble, and so when this comes up in the House of Commons, a, I mean, a good rule of thumb is whenever staff comes up in the House of Commons, fire, regardless <laughs> of who you are and what the issue is, Someone has screwed up because staff should never come up in the House of Commons. Yeah. So when Butts, regardless of the conservative position, that there was enough um, of a line of questioning for them to even consider raising this, yeah. Butts screwed up. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that Butts being the principal secretary, effectively one of the two most senior yeah. uh, staff. Along with the chief of staff. Along with the chief of staff, Katie Telford, one of the two most senior staff in the prime minister's office is free to spend half his day on Twitter, perhaps not that much, and to tweet unvetted by anyone else because you know... He, but, well, he might be, but it doesn't no, seem like he is. No, it does not I, seem I would, like I would bet you yeah, all I, the I beer agree. I will consume in the rest of my life that no one no one vets his tweets. For, for anyone who doesn't but, know Etienne, that is a real gamble he's just taking. But, but the irony here, though, is that when you have an organization like the PMO that is so tight on message control... Yeah, can you imagine if Stephen Harper's chief of staff was at home watching football, just tweeting stuff <laughs> out? Like, that guy would have been killed. You have them so, so tight on message control. Yeah. And they vet everything. There was a piece recently talking about Kate Purchase and her rereading of every single thing that goes through as a communications product, and then you just have this absolute loose cannon sitting in the highest office just running his mouth on Twitter <laughs> like seven hours a day. It, it, like, it's worth saying it that... It makes no sense. It, it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, it, it is definitely worth saying that uh, Jerry Butts is a longtime personal friend of the Prime Minister since university, like they're old college buddies, and like I think that is his armor because he is just... In unless his advice is just so, so good, but like... At this point, I have trouble imagining the caliber of advice this guy has to be giving you that it is worth it. So let me just reiterate. To anyone who supports Piers Morgan's Twitter fight with, or uh, Jerry Butts' Twitter fight with Piers Morgan's, that is not an issue. It's not whether or not he said the right thing, whether or not his position was defensible. The fact that he is getting... Jerry Butts really confirms one of the, like, terrible stereotypes with people who do debate which is that they are unbelievably tedious people and uh, he just really lives it no one else would bother arguing with Piers Morgan a man who is literally less popular than dog shit <laughs> <laughs> like is, I don't know why you would bother like Piers like why are you talking to me like you suck but no he felt compelled to go to the reductio ad Hitlerum on the first step it's not great there anyway, you go so 
Um, how, how are debates scored in university? I have no idea. It sounds like a real hobby uh, for nerds, and I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I imagine like the figure skating, like holding up of the cards, and someone just giving him a two. Yeah, for no, this honestly, reference. like, like it's, for someone who like you know like is by any fair standard a nerd, I have a real real hatred of nerds. Um, what do you? What do you? What? Why, why do you hate nerds? They're terrible. Terrible. Uh, no, I, I disagree with your generalization. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna later just we're gonna take you on a tour of nerddom, and you're gonna agree with me by the end of it. Anyway, uh, the the new ethics commissioner, Mario Dion, had a uh, name rings a bell. I yeah, feel, I feel like we've discussed him we once or twice. It's our favorite beat. Uh, he appeared before the ethics committee last Thursday and uh, raised some eyebrows. It's probably fair to say. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty reasonable assertion. Um, so it was basically his first big appearance in front of the ethics committee of the yeah. house. It was kind of a get to know you sort of thing, like the the members asking uh, him so his views on a range of access inform or not access information. I'm sorry, of uh, ethics and conflict of interest issues. The preliminary grilling, if you will. Yeah. So he had. I think it's fair to say that Dion seems much more hawkish than his predecessor, Mary Dawson. On a broad variety of issues, he suggested, you know, closing indirect uh, holdings loopholes and would, in fact, he suggested, like, I, I think by any reasonable reading of the spirit of the act, indirect holdings count as holdings. Like, it's just, like, absurd to say the separation of, or this uh, degree of separation exists that is meaningful uh, between those two cases. One of the, yeah, one of the liberal MPs pressed him on it. And I, I was actually impressed with the liberal MP um, whose name I think was it was a, Michel Picard or Frank Bayless. I can't it was, it was neither of those. No? Um, it was sort of the young up-and-comer liberal. Oh, oh Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. Ers- yeah, yeah, yeah. He went er- right at Erskine the end. Smith he was, yeah, he was the chair of the committee, so, was, or temporarily. Was pressing him on that particular point. Yes. And, and I thought Erskine-Smith's line of questioning was actually very good there. And he was talking about, well, if you can just reinterpret, um, or if you're open to reinterpretation, yeah. then why don't you just reinterpret Mary Dawson's interpretation yeah. of direct versus indirect holdings? And Dion's response was, we'll see when it comes out. It sounds like he'd be happy to. but uh, It sounds like he'd be happy to, but the other thing is... Um, commissioners can provide memos and guidance on how things are going to be interpreted. Yeah. So the wait until it comes up excuse or sort of position doesn't really fly with me uh, to say that, you know, you never you never know until well, okay. I, I rule. That's true. Um, and in Canadian, like, sort of legal tradition, we do have a tradition of asking for sort of, like, reference cases and like you know advisory rulings yes um that is not the case in every jurisdiction like the u.s like no, but- famously harry truman got into a world of shit because he asked fred vinson supreme court head justice or uh, chief justice his opinion on something and then the supreme court ended up ruling the other way but wait I, I, um, we don't need to like- bring up harry truman to say that this has been the tradition of commissioners in Canada over just, the past seven years. I just really like that, that Harry Truman anecdote. <laughs> just shoehorn that one in. It's a good. He wanted to send us striking miners to Korea. But it, forget Harry Truman for a yeah, minute. Yeah, it's fun. Dawson, as well yeah, as I know you're right. the lobbying commissioner, Karen Shepard, and now Ka- someone else. Karen Shepard. Now someone else. So I, I don't, I don't know remember her the name. new guy. We should her, look that up. Her? It is, is, it a, an, is it another one? It okay. is a her. Um, have done preemptive rulings on things like that. They have effectively done references in the past. And so the decision said, oh, we'll see how it comes. I was pretty wishy-washy on that one. Yeah. And, and props, full props to Erskine Smith for pushing this issue on something that is reasonably sensitive for libs. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah, really. Um, he's been a bit of a, like a, I think loose cannon is perhaps far, but. For uh, er- Erskine? Yeah. Dis- you don't think that's far? I would disagree 100% with that characterization. Are you thinking of Falcon Willette? No, I'm thinking of Erskine Smith. He was the one who went forward with the, um, who's, who stuck to his guns on proportional representation and went forward with the animal rights uh, or animal cruelty bill that was uh, ended up getting shot down. He actually has been decently maverick-ish. On, yeah, I, uh, I think he's widely viewed as sort of an up-and-comer in liberal circles. Um, less so than a loose cannon, but perhaps okay. that's... Okay, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's certainly different from the party line on several issues. Uh, so, I don't know. I mean, he does strike me as a bright guy. Are you uh, sure you're not talking I am, about I, Falcon Yes, I know who I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, I, I'm pretty sure, yeah. All right, we'll see. I am 100% sure. I, did. I said pretty, but no. <laughs> uh, anyway, so you also... Oh, actually, no, we should have a publication ban thing. 
Oh, yeah. So, I mean, this was sort of an offhand remark by uh, Mario Dion during the committee. He sort of mused about a potential publication ban. Yeah, and, and the that... context of this, like, I get where he's coming from. Because he said basically that, uh, you know, like, people will send a letter to the commissioner and then immediately give it to media. Just to sort of, like, make show of it. And then what he said was, like, well, typically if someone's been accused of a conflict of interest violation, it's almost like they're automatically convicted in the court of public opinion. And that, like, maybe we should have a publication ban on the letters to and from and, like, on the investigation because I want to actually have a ruling out. I get where he's coming from. Like, that totally makes sense from the mindset of someone who wants to have the most, like, untainted investigation possible. Like, from his point of view, that makes a lot of sense. But... But it would be seriously unprecedented. Yes. And you can do it in court cases. Like a judge will say you can't publish you know, the name of a minor involved yeah. in crime or something. I, I mean, like... it's very much an in theory versus in practice. Yeah, exactly. I, I think in theory, justice and due process and many of these things are perhaps aided in isolation by publication bans where... Yeah. You know, the public gets all of the facts of the full investigation at, yes. at the end of the yeah. whole process. But, like, if if it's an inherently... It's political. It has to always be political. Like, yes. we can't completely outsource ethics policing to a commissioner. Yes. They can hand out especially, sanctions, but, like... Especially because the act is envisioned or envisions consequences for malpractice. Yeah. As entirely political ramifications, as because there are no yeah. consequences aside from yeah. you know having to pay back your you know your yeah. treat or whatever you were purchased or this five hundred dollar fine for noncompliance. Yeah, though he would say that he wants to have stronger penalties, which he does. But I, I so I but think I, I agree with you. Nevertheless, I think it is still like it is inherently political and should be treated as such. But yeah. So from what I've sort of read on this, I think it's slightly problematic or it becomes somewhat problematic to have stronger penalties because one of the things preventing penalties is that this is not a court of law mm-hmm. and so determining the amount of sanctions well there's no appeal yeah either yeah what? there's not nothing yes that's, he said he said that at committee that's not entirely correct there's something about the federal court the federal court can review it okay because this is remember this is what Taves was in the process of doing before he changed his position hmm. there is some sort of reference to, okay, the federal, to a federal court that he, can take he, place he seemed pretty um, but it is important to remember that this is not a court of law it is a commissioner yeah. and because of that I think there are sort of limits on the amount of consequences that sure. can be provided yeah I mean I don't think these people should be like you know like put onto an ice flow and then like you know launched into the ocean i just think like you know maybe the like ludicrous slap on the wrist we have now is perhaps a little underdone yeah and i think that's fair but even if you up the monetary penalty to say like three thousand dollars i think that's still inconsequential um like fifty thousand like what do we what do we yeah i I think there's like a room for reasonable debate there and like i expect the committee and the government will be both be considering that yeah so we will see we will see i think we'll as always we'll always be happy to come back to ethics issues to be seen uh you wanted to do a pot update oh yeah so there's some really interesting stuff that happened on the cannabis file recently so the reason i keep bringing up cannabis isn't necessarily because it's you know the most riveting piece of legislation for everyone Um, It's because, one, we've sort of been following it from the start. Two, it's one of the more interesting pieces of legislation going through the House right now. And it's also, or that Parliament. Yeah, Parliament broadly. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also being subjected to some sort of interesting procedural stuff um, that I, and it also involves the federal and provincial relations. So I I think it's sort of a a riveting case study um, to mention the most recent developments on it. Um, recently the Senate invited, uh, three ministers, uh, public safety, um, justice, the parliamentary secretary for, and the health minister, and then the parliamentary secretary for health and justice, who is Bill Blair, the point man on the cannabis file, um, to testify in front of a committee of the whole, that is the Senate convened in the Senate chamber as a committee. Yes. Um, to ask questions and bear testimony from the ministers. Yeah. Which I believe is a fairly common practice in American Congress, but not very much in the Canadian Parliament. Correct. It, yeah. it, it virtually never happens, and I think it might have been in, unprecedented in that it was broadcast live. That I um, think it would be, yeah. So where um, things Video are regularly well. broadcast... Yeah, that, oh, wow. that's, okay. that's the interesting part. 
Um, so where video is commonly used in the commons, it has, I think, before Tuesday of last week, um, never occurred in the Senate. It, oh, wow. That was literally the first time. I, okay. I, th- I think it was the first so time. I know they haven't done it much. Proceedings yeah. of the Senate, uh, sort of like regular proceedings of the Senate, were televised. Wow. Well, I mean, I guess it wouldn't technically be regular proceedings. Well, by regular, I mean like not a throne speech, sure. not, not something okay. like ceremonial. Okay. Um, so, um, out of that, the, the biggest thing coming out of that is the government, um, before the ministers went there, they actually pre-leaked that the July 2018 deadline might be pushed. And a lot of people made a big deal about this. I don't think it was necessarily as big of a deal as, uh, as was made. I think it comes from a sort of a fundamental misunderstanding of where that July 2018 number comes from. That has been anticipated as the sort of natural time preceding the passing of the legislation. Sure. But because of how delayed the legislation is going through the Senate, they're anticipating that we may need longer. Yeah. So one one of the interesting numbers the government gave was that they were anticipating passing the legislation by May 1st in order to hit that July 2018 deadline. Okay. And so they've said, you know, if it gets pushed past May 1st for third reading royal assent, we're going to need 8 to 12 weeks from whenever it's passed. Okay. And so the latest the legislation would be passed, call it late June, early July, would 8 to 12 weeks put you in, you know, August, September, somewhere around there. Yeah. Just in time for the new school year. Just in time for the new school year. Uh, perhaps a better time than uh, Canada Day. Yeah. Um, but so that's sort of where these numbers come from. And I, a lot of people were making like, oh, the government's, you know, reneging on its promise for this, this, and this. It is entirely practical considerations. Yeah, no, it makes it makes a ton of sense. In, um, entirely practical considerations. So one of the interesting um, pieces, the, the only other, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things going on with this right now. Um, but the most interesting thing that I'll mention is the spat that the federal government had last week with the Quebec provincial government. Mm-hmm. And so, as, as I perhaps I mentioned on here before, Quebec has put an entire uh, complete ban on home growth cannabis. That is to say, the federal legislation envisioned some degree of people being able to cultivate cannabis in their homes. Yes. Um, but the Quebec government said, oh, you said four or less plants, so we will pick zero. Four or fewer. Four or fewer. Sorry. Uh, Four or fewer, so we'll pick zero. Zero is fewer than four. Okay. And so this raises a really fun question, which is the double aspect doctrine. Tell me about the double aspect doctrine. And federal paramountcy in the ability of the federal government's legislation to supersede provincial legislation where they are covering the same topic. Right. So that is to say... That the intent of the federal legislation was to allow people to grow cannabis in their homes. Right. If if the government effectively states that on the record, yeah, that can be deemed as the spirit of the bill. Okay. And so for the provincial government to then say zero is basically zero is fewer than four, then that's in contravention. We are like this is like the person you don't want to play board games with. Oh, it does not say this in the rules. Um. That's sort of the move that they're doing in Quebec. Thinks that they have a legal argument. I tend to disagree, and the Department of Justice, I think, tends I mean, to disagree. I think Quebec always thinks that it has a point with regard to ah, but the province is the superior form of government. But so think think of this in a different way. The federal government gave the provinces the ability to um, legislate in regards to minimum possession amounts, age, sales and distribution, home grow, and a couple other yeah. areas. So if a provincial government were to say minimum age, 97, maximum possession amount, 0.01 grams, there is one store, it's in the north. Yeah. That would clearly frustrate the intent of the provincial government. Yeah. Not all of those things together, but any of them individually. Yes. And so this is sort of the position of the federal government is to say, no, Quebec, don't play these games. You're clearly frustrating our intent. We have said that we intend to make it sort of a de facto right of Canadians to be able to grow cannabis. Yeah. And so you can't infringe upon that. Fair enough. So what's the likely outcome for this? Perhaps going to court and then Quebec walking it back to something less ridiculous but also still ridiculous. Yeah. 
perhaps something like, oh, you can grow one plant in your house under these limits and your landlord must approve and with, out of sight of public and all these other things. Yeah. Um, but where, just to finish this final, final thought on this, um, where this becomes most interesting is not necessarily in the Quebec case, but in the case of future socially conservative premiers. Yes. And if socially conservative premiers consider revising the cannabis legislation that's going to be established this summer. Yeah. And so, so it'll if you, be an interesting test case, I suppose. Yeah. So if you had a Ken Shovel Dayov or someone like this elected who said, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set the age at you know, 45 or something like that, this is perhaps in where federal paramountcy might come yeah. up in the So future. basically le- only legalizing dope at Jimmy Buffett concerts. There you go. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and other small things just to kind of round up the, the episode here. There is a budget coming soon. Two weeks. Two, two weeks, weeks today. February 27th. So that'll be really interesting and we'll have a great episode for you when that comes out. I Probably think, a couple days later. I think we'll be, both be busy. Some of the initial themes to look for, I think, uh, that have sort of been telegraphed by the government are women and science and perhaps indigenous issues. Yeah, for sure. Like, I think they're, well, they, the, the Human Rights Tribunal came to that fourth compliance order. Like, they have to put money into CFS, so they probably will. So, so. Some, something to look forward to? Yep. Uh, C69, the Environmental Assessment Act, or the, I'm sorry, no, the Impact Assessment Act. So, worth noting that this was a 350 or 412 page bill, depending on whether or not you count the notations in it the back. It really, really, really bums me out that C69 was only eight <laughs> pages shy of having 420 pages. There it would have been the nicest bill in fair. history. Fair. Um, but whether you count the notes or not, it is, I think, pretty clearly an omnibus bill. What? I, 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 I thought they said they weren't going to do those. <laughs> yeah. Um, it effectively... Well, it's not unrelated matters, though. That's, for, like, really what makes an omnibus an omnibus. Otherwise, it's just a long bill. I think it covered a couple... That is specifically because when they did the Senate Modernization Report, they had... The one of the, uh, yeah, the, I know the it's rooted, unrelated. Yeah, that's the that's the, really the definition. I, I think I'd have to look back at the legislation and see how much of it is unrelated. Um, but basically, it's a broad reading of what environmental assessment is. That is for sure because it's talking about social impacts and other kinds of impacts as well. But I think you can conceivably argue pretty reasonably that it's not an omnibus, really, in the same way that the sort of like broad, unrelated sort of package bills were. So. I don't know. I think there's a reasonable debate to be had there. I haven't read the whole text of the bill. You haven't. I haven't. Pathetic. I know. Uh, I failed. But uh, no, I, I would, knowing what I know about it, I don't think you could, You, I think you could call it an omnibus, but it'd be very uncharitable. Wait, we're, okay. I, I will call it an omnibus. I will be very uncharitable. Okay, we're going to disagree. <laughs> Folks, we have a disagreement on the record. <laughs> Woo! Um, I... I don't think we want to go into depth on it. Uh, the details of the energy regulator space are uh, are not really my forte. Yeah. Nor yours, I suppose. No. Um, yeah. Worth noting um, the amount of attention the government put into this and how significant this is in terms of the government's agenda. Yeah. Well, um, it really is seen as backing up. Um, some of their talk on pipelines well, and this energy is, projects. This is the big thing about the pipelines is that. The pipeline projects that they have and are pushing were approved under an environmental assessment process that they concede is flawed and wanted to reform. So that's kind of been like, there's a tension there that that is hard to reconcile. That they say, oh, it's good enough, but we had to reform it because it wasn't good enough. So, I don't know. That's an obvious tension, I think. Sure. I I will. (laughs) Sure. I will will concede that. I I don't know. I, I'll, I'll be the first one to concede. I don't know that much about the the weeds of the environmental assessment process, um, so I I will hold my tongue because I don't feel I can t- intelligently comment on it. If all podcasts were like this, it'd be much shorter. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, um, <laughs> did you want to talk about the private members bill that you had in mind? Oh yeah. So in an ongoing in our ongoing segment about private members bills, I have selected. What I might crown the best private members bill of this session of Parliament. Carry on. And I have to give credit to Richard Kennings of South Okanagan, West Kootenai. And coming off discussion of a 412-page bill, let me mention this perhaps... It is very concise. ...less than 412-word bill. And let me read it uh, for you in... uh, its entirety. 
Uh, so clause one, the only clause of the bill, reads, Section 7 of the Department of Public Works and Government Service Act is amended by adding the following after subsection 1. Use of wood. This is the heading. 1.1. In awarding contracts for construction, maintenance, repair, public works, federal real property, or federal immovables, the minister shall give preference to projects that promote the use of wood, taking into account the associated costs and reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, so you think this is really funny. I think uh, it's... You, you're taking the piss. <laughs> this poor man... <laughs> Who's poured his heart and soul into this bill. I think this is perhaps one of the worst pieces of legislation I've ever seen. I mean, C-51. Not even close. Not even close, my friend. Um, Yeah, so this would propose that in some, you know, every RFP perhaps would have to have a line item for how are you planning to use wood in this item? I can just imagine the government going too far down this. And then you show up at your, like your government office, and all the furniture is wooden. That sounds there's, great. There's no drywalls. It's just uh, chipboard. Like everything is wood. It's like we had to. Bill C three five four demanded it. So I will respond to your inane blathering with two good points. The first is that, uh, as they point out with greenhouse gas emissions, uh, concrete and steel is a both are both very carbon intensive and uh, last centuries longer. They do, but however, we're really reaching the point where, like, you can see, like, you feel free to Google this. Like, we're getting to the point where we can build like very tall buildings out of wood, like using like you know very modern uh, materials science insights and procedures like we can make wooden skyscrapers now do you think that the build doesn't go far enough we i mean humanity, no, no 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 i just humanity has made very good ships out of wood do you think true. our navy should be retrofitted with no, wooden we, vessels no that's like patently just like a reductio ad absurdum i mean come on like it's that, just like this that's is, what i was going no for. but this is this is a legitimate building technique that is entering a like period that's of fine. technological and economical viability yes, and it seems yes, to me yes you're, in terms of adapting to climate change, that it is a good idea. That is Second, fine. That is fine. You do not need to legislate this consideration. Oh, free, you can the, let them win on their own merits. The free market will decide government procurement, right? No, but here's actually my second point, is that when procurement is held to cost-only basis, so when it cannot consider anything other than cost, rather than being able to consider impact on local job markets... Uh, environmental impacts like any sort of a suite of other sort of holistic categories that you'd want to consider or sorry any sort of other categories that you want to consider in the scope of a holistic analysis of the economic impact of what you're doing and value for money so sort of balancing those two things which i think is a reasonable thing to do i think it's very reasonable to talk about this in a broader scope than just like okay let's just like slap together some cheap shit out of concrete and steel and call it a day like Let's talk about, okay, so, like, building this would help develop, like, the skills in this labor market, which is good. Like, I think this is a totally worthwhile conversation to have. What I'm hearing is you advocating for the current state of federal military procurement, and it is destroying me inside. No, I if, think, if like, only the... people thought of the poor shipbuilders in British Columbia and the poor Irving families on yes, the, the on poor, poor Irving The family. poor Irvings who need well, I, the okay. boats I, I agree and the, the jobs. Mil- and yeah. we can't possibly buy vessels from the French. No. It would not employ Canadians. I agree that the military procurement system is very bad, and I think, obviously, there's a way to do this badly, like, with anything, right? Like, if you... Like, if... I think the response to anything where you say, ah, but it has been done badly is like, well, yes, like it can be done badly. I think that's true. I think it's possible to do anything badly. It's possible to implement quite good ideas very poorly. But I I think the crux of the mechanism you are advocating for is the things that make military procurement the worst. I am actually remarkably fine with people with military procurement or not military, with all procurement being based essentially on cost. I think it is very blinkered. I think it, it really, like, for instance, if you are a local, like, hospital, university, like, what's called the, the sort of MASH institutions, yeah. municipal academic school and hospital, uh, being able, especially, like, in smaller cities and towns, like, when you are really, like, the economic anchor institution, the ability to sort of, like, use that economic weight to stimulate development of your local market and, like, you know, sort of environment generally is a good thing. I think, like, if you look at, like, for example, the city of Preston in the UK has actually done quite impressive things uh, in this regard. 
Um, people can look that up if they like. Uh, but no, I think like it, procurement is an important tool of like social development, and I think it should be used as such. Like, obviously, I think you do need to be considerate of costs, and you can't just be doing like ridiculous mega projects for your own vanity and like whatever. But I think there is a a reasonable balance of like value for money and holistic economic development and social development that like are reasonable to look at. Well, I disagree with many of the points that you've made. I feel like you've gotten off topic of with the wood, bill. Of the, the bill in question. Well, because like, you did, I feel like you're making a lot of your excuses core, for the wood bill. The wood bill is fine. No, I have no problems not. with the wood it's bill. So bad. I have no problems with the wood bill. Okay, but let's start with the interesting of the wood bill is that it passed. Well, what did it pass? Second reading? Second reading. That's pretty... Most bills do not get past second reading. Also somewhat ridiculous. Yeah, um, Bill 262 passed... Uh, Second reading, and that was quite an achievement. So I believe... That's the hundred uh, bill for people at home. I believe 354 passed second reading with the support of the Liberals and the NDP, because it is an NDP PMB. Yep. Um, but the Conservatives voted against it. Thank God. <laughs> Mr. Cannings has also written a book about... He might be Dr. Cannings, actually. has written a book about uh, the birds of southeastern British Columbia. Well worth your time. I just wish that in awarding contracts for the construction, maintenance or repair of public works, federal real property, or federal removables, the minister shall give preference to projects that promote the use of birds. That maybe it would <laughs> Would that be good? Birds. <laughs> that could be 365. It would more. juice sales of his book for sure. That's, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, you need more I, stork bones for these beams. So I think that'll do it for us today. Uh, as usual, uh, write, rate and review on, on iTunes. Uh Follow us on Twitter. Uh, a parting piece of advice, and I've been meaning to say this for a while, for all the new people who've joined us since uh, episode one and every subsequent episode. Um, there, Especially in the early days, we did a couple of really great interviews with uh, Rob Silver, uh, Jennifer Robson. We've interviewed David Coletto, Paul Wilson. If you scroll back in the feed and uh, are looking for something a little more to listen to, I would strongly recommend any of those ones. Yeah, it's also just good bands um, and uh, good stories and all that good stuff. So, yeah, they're less of the politics of the day and sort of still salient today, so still yeah. very much worth a listen. Or if you're just like really craving those 2017 news beats, like where they're all go. there, all your favorites. Timeless. Woo! Uh, so yeah, that'll do it for us this week. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye! So I was thinking there's a real void in Canadian podcasting right now. Is that no one's really doing like intelligent like media criticism? Like I feel like that's a real like no one is doing that. Like I don't think anyone's even really thought about doing that. Like why has no one done that? It's insane. <laughs>